When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 451 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam today. Uh, really excited for you to hear the conversation that's the bulk of today's episode that I had with Janet Skeslin Charles. Uh, she is the author of the new book, The Paris Library. Uh, you may also recognize Janet's name because her previous book, uh, was Moonlight in Odessa, and it was an award-winning, just extremely popular title. Um, the Paris Library is so, so good. It's based on this true story from World War II, where these librarians uh, in the American Library in Paris kind of helped save a lot of the stories in the library itself. And um, But it's more than just that. It's also a story about um, you know, romance and friendship and and family, um, the one thing that's described in the on her website that I really love is the, the power of literature to bring us together, which obviously uh, we very much feel on the podcast and, and in our company and everything. Uh, speaking of literature, bringing people together, you just want to say if you are one of the many people who checked out our episode last week on our anti-racist reading list and reached out and had some nice words for us, um, thank you. Really appreciate that. Uh, in case you missed it, our uh, episode last Thursday... Uh, we did an anti-racism reading list that you can find on our website at professionalbooknerds.com. Um, just obviously, things continue to go on in the United States and the world um, and that are just really, really powerful. I would recommend, if you haven't seen it already, uh, search Kimberly Jones on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, she's one of the co-authors of I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, and she's been on the podcast a few times. She had an incredible uh, interview that's just been getting buzz all over the place. I know John Oliver ended his show with one of her quotes, and I know Trevor Noah and Lizzo and all sorts of people shared it. Um, really, really powerful stuff. Uh, Janet's book is interesting, the parallels of the conversation that we had. Um, we talk a lot about things that when we recorded this was back in January and stuff that was going on in the world about um, people being up in arms about librarians recommending LGBTQ books and uh, all these things that were going on and the similarities between uh, World War II um, internment camps. And, and again, just it's there's some parallels there. And something that I really liked in our conversation that we got into is when you think about World War II, they, it continues to be a really popular time uh, for books and people are very fascinated with the time and everything that happened around the war. And it's obviously such a tragic event. You know, I have um, Jewish family in my in my bloodline. My my dad's side of our family is Jewish, and you know they say you know six million Jewish people perished because of you know the Nazis and the Holocaust and everything. And that's such a large number, and people really have. It's hard to fathom what that looks like. As I don't think we as people can really comprehend what six million people look like but when you take a book like the Paris Library and you can take individual stories out of this massive thing um, and really focus on what's happening in this one particular place you have an ability to connect with these people um, Janet says it really well you know there's you know we're six million people who 
know, tragically died, six million Jewish people. Um, there are six million stories, and so she thinks that's one of the reasons why World War II stories continue to be so popular is because they do give us an ability to hear different stories, and, and despite it being a tragic time, uh, it being a way for people to um, still find maybe some hope in, in some stories. So uh, this is certainly one of them. Uh, the book is phenomenal. It's it's beautiful, and you're going to absolutely love it. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always go to professionalbooknerds.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. Or if you're looking for more book recommendations, just feel free to shoot us an email at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Uh, I think that's just about everything for the intro. I'm not going to wait around uh, any longer. I'm going to let you guys get to this interview with Janet Skeslin Charles on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Adam, and I am still hanging out here in Philadelphia at the American Library Association Midwinter Conference. I'm very excited to be sitting down with Janet Skeslin Charles, who is an award-winning author of Moonlight in Odessa and the Paris Library, which is her new book that we'll be talking about today. Uh, her shorter work has appeared in reviews such as Slice and Montana Noir. She learned about the history of the American Library in Paris while working there as a programs manager. She divides her time between Montana and Paris, which I'm very interested in. Janet, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we always love starting our conversations by having the author kind of introduce our listeners to the book. So can you give us a little bit of an introduction to the Paris Library? Um, I guess I would say it's World War II. Mm -hmm. Paris is occupied. There's a war on words. And it's Nazis versus American librarians. Mm -hmm. And the librarians win. So it's the true story of the librarians at the American Library in Paris during World War II. Mm -hmm. I'm, I love this idea. First off, I'm so fascinated that you know it's 2020, which is weird to say. I haven't gotten used to saying that yet. But it's 2020, and we're still so interested in World War II stories this year. There's still such a hunger for them. I'm just, why do you think we are all still so fascinated by all of these intricate stories that took place so long ago? I think in particular World War II, there are so many smaller stories within that huge historical context. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting to see individually how people survived. I think for the library, not many people know how institutions dealt with uh, the Nazi censorship mm -hmm. or, for example, in my book, uh, the Nazis wanted the American Library in Paris to take books out of their collection. Right. They wanted um, the library to stop allowing Jewish people into the library. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's just seeing on a smaller scale how an institution um, and the people who work there dealt with the Nazis. But I also think that World War II is pretty far away from us now and it seems black and white. Mm -hmm. uh, Nazis, bad, everyone else, good. Yeah. And yet there are so many parallels to our modern world. I mean, what we're doing right now with, with with immigrants mm -hmm. and and how we're treating immigrants and 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 separating parents from mm -hmm. children, it, a lot of things are going on um, that it did happen during World War II, and so I think there are a lot of parallels, sadly. Well, and even um, is it Missouri? There's a lot of news going on today about libraries. I think it's Missouri, and well, we can talk about it. There's there's the whole idea that 
if you provide recommendations of an LGBTQ book, you could be arrested. I mean, there's still... Yes, librarians, yes, they want to arrest or fine librarians yeah. for having the books in their collection yeah. or recommending books to kids who need them. Yeah. Uh, it's phenomenal to me that, that, that they actually want to pass that bill into law. It, yeah, I, and I think when you can sort of personalize the story, you know, speaking of both World War II and now, I, I, to me, the reason I'm always fascinated by these, these types of stories like yours, I know that a little bit compared to The Book Thief and things like that, is if you tell someone, I have, my father's side of my family is Jewish, so I'm very connected to a lot of, if you mentioned the, the Holocaust things, but when you think of when they say, like, oh, six million Jews die, right? you can't, I think as people, we can't fathom how massive that is, but if you can individualize it into a story about a library in Paris and how they I think that, do you think that that's lends to why people can relate a little bit more, like, a little better to this type of story than such a large scale one? I, I think that's absolutely right, and I would add that with those six million deaths, there are six million stories, and very harrowing stories about people and their loved ones and, and their tragedy, so I think I think we need to really honor the stories and, and try to tell the ones that we can. And so I, I did a lot of research in the um, memorial of the, of the Holocaust in, in Paris, and it was really harrowing to go there and read, because in their, in their archives they actually have the, the, the letters of denunciation of, of Jewish people. And the letters, the people who are writing them are so rabid mm -hmm. and so illogical in their hatred, it's it's really difficult to translate them because they, they make no sense. Yeah. They're just filled with hate and they, they're just spewing rage and, and jumping from one subject to the next. It's So, no, I think we do need to tell those stories. I, I can't even imagine how that must have felt seeing those stories, like, like you said, reading them and translating them. Like, what is going through your mind while you're reading these letters? It, I, I have to say, I don't think I realized it at the time, but I was depressed for a couple of years yeah. while I was researching this because you really see the, you really see the horror of humanity and the things that people are willing to do to mm -hmm. move into someone else's apartment or get someone else's jewelry, yeah. um, get someone else's job because people denounce their coworkers, they denounce their neighbors, they denounce their family members. Right. So it's really no, it's really it's it's really tragic in a lot of ways. But um, but then there's also a lot of good in the world, and there are so many associations and NGOs working mm -hmm. for a better world, and so many volunteers working for a better world. Yeah. So it's just we have to kind of remember that. Yeah, I'm so I'm curious. Did did you know about this story before you started working at the library? I sort of what made you want to tell the story, and, and how did you come across it? I, I guess would be the question. Well, I volunteered at the library, and I hadn't really heard about the story. And then when I started working there, there were two people at the library, Nida Kulshaw and Simone Gallo. And uh, Simone is Italian, and he's worked at the library for 50 years. And Nida was the community outreach manager, and she is uh, she has a degree in, I think, um, curating muse in museums and curating exhibits and things like that. So she did the exhibits at the American Library in Paris. And so she... And, she and Simone got to talking, and Simone knew about this because he's our he's our institutional memory. Yeah. And uh, Nida is the one who could really bring out what Simone knew, and then she did a she did a, a presentation of the librarians mm -hmm. during that time period, um, during World War II and just after World War II. Yeah. And so they were the ones that really brought out the story because Miss Reader and the Countess weren't really known 
started before then. Mm -hmm. Now within the library community, we know about them and maybe on a, a little bit in Paris, but not as much as I would like. Yeah, and so did this feel like a story as soon as you first learned about it? We were like, oh, this needs to be a, a novel. Like, not a novel. It needs to be a story that's told yes, on the world. Yes, no, I knew it was a novel and I just I sat down to research and write it. I didn't know that it would take so long, but there's, you know, World War II is so vast and there's so much nuance. And then it's so interesting that it's it's easy to get um, sidetracked a little bit and just keep reading things that maybe won't contribute to the book, but are just so fascinating yeah. and fun to read. I was going to say, it's very much like a falling down a rabbit hole type of a situation. Yes, I yes. imagine, though, working the... A lot of times, I love asking people about the research process. But I imagine... You had access to that. You were in the library. I have to imagine the materials you were most frequently referencing were, in fact, references you had available to you pretty easily. Well, I did a lot of different kinds of research, but I think mainly the documentation came from the American Library Association archives, mm -hmm. and they could just they just could uh, scan and send me all of their mm -hmm. archives because they kept copies of all the letters and things like that, yeah. uh, news clippings, and there were just hundreds of pages. I reached out to the Library of Congress. I reached out to, um, I have the um, real life characters in my book. I reached out to their families. So to one um, one woman, I talked to her, two of her nephews. To one, I talked to um, Boris Nechev, the head librarian. I talked to his two kids. Yeah. Uh, so I, I talked to, there was a couple in the library who fell in love while they worked there, Helen and Peter. Uh -huh. They married when they returned to the States. I talked to their granddaughter. So it was, and then of course, um, once I had a, the project where I knew it was going somewhere, then I reached out to former colleagues mm -hmm. at the library and was able to look through their photos and things like that. What was that like? What, that experience of speaking to the ancestors, what was that? That had to be pretty magical. It was really incredible, and it was especially interesting to talk to Boris's kids because one was born before the war and one was born towards the end, so they were... They were only maybe five years apart in age, but mm -hmm. they were like a generation apart in terms of their experiences. Right. And when they spoke about their father, one would listen and say, I didn't know that. Or, mm -hmm. And the other one would say something and they'd say, I didn't know that. And so it was like they were describing a completely different person. Uh -huh. So it was really, it was very fun too. Yeah. Very fun. Um, so I mentioned, you know, we've been talking about, about the Paris Library. And I also mentioned that you're from Montana originally. So how, how does that journey, how does that happen? How does someone from Montana, because you attended college. At the University of Montana. At the University of Montana. So how, how does one go from the University of Montana to working at a, a library in Paris? Well, I, first of all, I grew up on the same street as a war bride. So that's how I kind of heard the French language and was, there was really just um, one person from elsewhere in my hometown. Yeah. Everyone else had been there for, you know, generations. We're a farming community. And so I just was fascinated by that war bride, and she was really lovely. And she, when she spoke English, she made it sound even better. <laughs> she just, it was just so beautiful. Everything she said sounded just beautiful. Yeah. And then I went to the University of Montana, and I studied French. And my favorite professor was from, was from France. And I just absolutely, absolutely loved the French classes. And so I decided to become a teaching assistant in France for a year. And so I worked in a French high school in Alsace, and uh, then I moved to Paris, and I got another teaching contract, teaching in, this time in a in a school in the in the Paris suburbs. And I just kept on renewing that contract to teach because I just really enjoyed living in France. 
and I met my husband and I got married um, and then eventually I started applying for other jobs and I got a job at the American Library in Paris so, so that's your, what happened. Is your husband French as well? He is French. Okay. So I mean, actually, what's the preferred language when you guys are you know, at home? Is it French or is it English? Is it a little mix of both? I think it's kind of franglais, a little of both. Uh-huh. And I think at first it was more it was more English because, uh, or excuse me, it was more French because I I'd, I'd studied French and at school kids studied English but only written English mm-hmm. and um, English like textbook. Well, more like manual, like car manuals, yeah. electricity manuals. <laughs> so it's very technical English. And then it's been 20 years that we've been married, and so he spends a lot of time in the States now, and now he speaks right. fluently and not just technical yeah. manual I, I love English. That's so interesting. I love that, like, how he kind of learned English is through technical. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm From a craft, a writing craft standpoint, do you find yourself putting in the turns of phrases or things that you would see more French writers writing into, I guess, how do you think being is it bilingual or do you speak other languages as well? Well, I, I lived in Ukraine for two years, so I spoke, I spoke Russian, but the more I speak French, the less I speak Russian. Russian. I, need to, I need to keep it up, otherwise I'm going to lose it, yes. So how do you think that having these different kind of cultural touch points to their language affects your writing process? I think when we study other languages, we see language in a different way. There's a great journal in France called Coyer International where they take news articles from other countries and they translate them. And so, for example, there was an article uh, from Spain and a, a worker in Spain was being interviewed and he said, they're squeezing us like lemons. The employers are squeezing us like lemons. Uh-huh. And that's not something we say uh, <laughs> technically, but I mean, maybe in a country that, you know, with warmer weather where you do have lemon trees and you do maybe make sangria by pressing those lemons, I don't know, and uh, just that imagery. So I do think that, that the language is very rich. For this book and for my other book, Moonlight in Odessa, I, I really wanted to ground the, the narrative in, in place and also language. And so, for example, in the Paris Library, I tried to use French phrases whenever possible, like to say someone doesn't compromise, yeah. we can say they won't put water in their wine, so that's that's a phrase. Yeah. Um, for example, French people can say white is, as- white is an aspirin, mm-hmm. which of course we say white is a sheet, yeah. so in Russian we'd say skinny is a matchstick. Uh-huh. Um, so just trying to use some of those phrases or imagery, I think, in English too. That's so interesting. I'm so fascinated by that. I, I spoke with other authors who speak multiple languages, in fact, they're first language is in English, but then they're writing books in English, and that, that is always kind of on my mind, like, would you, do you ever write stories in French, or, like, do you find yourself? I never do, I always, um, I'm the one who kind of writes the, like, the letters and things like that to kind of take care of the documentation or the, the translate, bureaucracy. Like the translations and things? No, like, just, just bureaucracy, oh, just dealing with okay. a banker, things like that, and sure. so it, it, it's kind of the language for me where I just have to get the stuff done uh-huh. and I I love French and I think it's very beautiful but I just I, I would not write in, in French I do sure. have friends who live in France Americans who have written books in French uh-huh. and have had them published in French and I am and Marcella in particular I'm I just admire her so much yeah. because it would just be so challenging to write a book in French 
Uh, but no, that's that's not for me. But I um, like Young Lee. I just I love her work, and I saw her spoke. I saw her speak, and she just was so amazing talking about the process. Yeah. I just admire people who can write in a foreign language. It's so admirable. I'm always the, the authors. I'm now friends with several of them who are multilingual, and they write books in different and there's other languages. And I just start laughing. I'm like, you use my language, my language better than I use my language, and you're writing books. I just I'm so interested in that. Um, What's something that our American audiences might not know about the, the, the French like the library systems and things like, are there differences between American and French libraries that you've noticed? Well, in, in my book, I really make a point of saying how special the American library in Paris is, mm-hmm. and then I started doubting it. Okay. And uh, one of the things is that in, in France, they, for a long time, at the beginning of the 20th century, they had libraries that were open to the public, but there, there were no open stacks. Mm-hmm. And so you would have to go up to the person who is just a bureaucrat, not a trained library, not an archivist, and say what you wanted. But the, the books were in the order that they'd been received. They were cataloged by date, not by alphabetical order, not oh by subject. So it would, you'd have a really hard time even finding the book that you wanted. Right. And so the, the American Library in Paris was really revolutionary at the time when it started in 1920 because it did have an open stack system. And I did start to wonder, well, maybe, maybe by 1939, 1941, my book, maybe, maybe they already did have the open stack system. But then I heard a recording with the, um, in, it's a, a recording from 1949. It's a recording with the director of the American Library in Paris. It's a French journalism journalist asking um, Ian Fraser, Ian Forbes Fraser, that's his name, about the library. And, and the journalist is looking around and she's saying, but all of these stacks, books, anyone can take anything. Aren't you worried about theft? And so he had to say, French people never steal our books. We've uh-huh. never had problems with, it, with our French yeah. patrons. If books go missing, it's usually a traveler who just forgets to take the book, right. bring the book in, and, and they just go they just go home with it, and uh-huh. it's not it's never anything mean. But that was in 1939, where someone was afraid having open stacks would lead to, to theft. theft. Yeah, that's so that, that's so interesting, just because like the com- the commonality of walking. I can't imagine walking into a library and having and no just books. walking up and just being barren and yeah, being like, well, exactly. And especially because the. They mentioned the open set. One of my favorite things to do is just browsing, just mm-hmm. going yes. through, and you yes. you never know what you want to, to borrow. So <laughs> that's, I can't imagine going into the library and knowing exactly what I wanted, yes. and just going up to someone and saying like, "Okay, this is what I want." Um, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer when you were growing up? Because you studied, and you say you studied French. But did you also study? I studied English as well. I. Uh, I was I, I was always a writer. Even when I was 12, I was a writer. Maybe now I'm a novelist, but I was always a writer. I always wrote in journals. I always wrote letters. Uh, writing is so important to me. I, I, I get really cranky when I don't write. It's like, I'm like, it's like writing is like I'm a pressure cooker and like uh-huh. releasing that valve and letting out yeah. everything. And that just, that's what writing does for me. So I've always been a writer. And uh, Do you have a preferred style of writing whether it's short fiction or because I know doing 
a book like this that is such an exhaustive amount of research can be you have to be willing to take on years of your life so do you have a, a preference of what, st what style of writing you do? I, I enjoy reading short stories but it is it is not my medium and I wish I could write story short stories but I, I've, I've got a short story that I've been trying to place on and off for 10 years and I've never been successful and part of it is I'm just not I'm just not assertive enough to keep sending it out. Sure. But part of it is also, um, I just I just find it's, it's such a challenging, challenging thing to do because you have to say so much in so little space. I'm better with 10,000 words, uh -huh. you know. I just, you know. <laughs> or in this case, like about 100, 100 and yeah, some thousand yeah. words. Um, did you, uh, when you're doing such an exhaustive like, research story like, story like this, I'm curious, how you know when to stop the research and start the writing? Like, were you still researching while you were writing things, or what was that process yes. like for you? I, I did both at the same time because I think if I had just done the research, I would still be researching because it's yeah. so interesting. And so I wish I had taken better notes. Uh, everything is so interesting that you just think to yourself, oh, I'll remember that, I'll remember where I found that. But then when you have just, you know, 10,000 pieces of information, right. it, you, you can't quite remember where uh -huh. you found it or what page or yeah. what year, uh, especially for things like I, I looked at I, like library journal or just different library um, magazines mm -hmm. um, for the time to find out what librarians were concerned about yeah. and uh, the issues that they had. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting because um, those are the same issues that we have now, yeah. which is really surprising. Um, I mentioned also you spend a lot of time both in Montana and France. Is it, are you still in like Paris when you're in France? Yes. Does it feel, does it take some getting used to doing kind of the culture shock thing of like the, the two different types? Because that's just the, with, between farmland and then such a major cosmopolitan area that has to be, does it take some getting used to when you're going back and forth? I, I imagine at this point you're used to it, but. Well, I think you're absolutely right. It wasn't culture shock between French and English so much as it was between small town and large city. Right. And it's just, it was a huge, it is a huge shock um, and I'm used to it now, but it did, it did like just even, even the prices, yeah. you know, in France you have a 20% sales tax, so it just, and in Montana we don't have a sales tax, and in small towns it's, you, you just don't have to pay as much for things, so it's little things like that where at first you're really, you're really surprised, mm -hmm. and I have a friend from London, when she comes to Paris, she, she buys up everything because it's so cheap, but oh my God. for really? me, for, wow. so from, but for me it's the opposite, so it's just getting used to things, and um, but now I really, really enjoy the silence of Montana. I love the smells of Montana. It just smells so good. And I feel really bad because I didn't appreciate it as much as I could have growing up. Growing up, I just wanted out. I wanted a big city. And now I'm more like, ooh, I want the country. I yeah. want the silence. I want the it is, space. It's like the, the star, you know, seeing, it's like something that smells like seeing stars at night. Yes, like, exactly. You don't really realize it until they're not there. Exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. Um, so, tour, actually, What's something, just because I've never been there, what's something about Montana that people might not know? I think a lot of people imagine it as kind of the Rockies, and we imagine the Rocky Mountains and, and the beauty of the, of the mountains, but actually I prefer the plains. Yeah. The state is two-thirds plains, mm -hmm. and it's just beautiful. You can, you can see just for 100 miles in mm -hmm. any direction, and you just feel the infinite possibilities. It's yeah. really beautiful. So, I, I, As a person who grew up in, um, I, outside of Cleveland, but... Ohio, we like to joke, Ohio is basically Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and corn. Like, that's all that it is. It's a bunch of seeds. Um, and so the same thing, like, I'll be driving. I went to graduate school at Xavier University, which is down in Cincinnati, and I live near Cleveland. 
So I would literally drive through three cities, and all the rest was corn. And I loved, like, just like you said, being able to see for miles and yes. it's open. Yes, that's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so towards the end of our episodes, we like to do nine lighthearted questions. I call the Nerd Nine because I enjoy alliteration. Uh, so the first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? I just finished reading The Dutch House, and I can't wait to get back to Paris to talk to a book group about it because the ending was so surprising to me, and I just want to get um, and my book friends' thoughts. And so I just love discussing books like that. Absolutely where there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of discussion and then I um, I'm reading now two self-published books and one is about uh, it's the history of a, a woman from Norway in 19 in the 1920s and it's written by I think her granddaughter and so she's reconstituted her grandmother's life through letters and historical society and so it's really cool how she's that how she's done that. So yes, I do like to read those histories of, of people's lives, mm-hmm. just to kind of and, and they're also a history of our country. What people yeah. you know how people got to the United States and the hardships they had, and um, even how male female relationships have changed and evolved, and not just their relationships, but um, how women you know had more of a maternal role compared to now where we have a lot more possibilities, things like that. So, no, it's been interesting to read as well. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? A favorite place to read? I usually like to read in bed. Sure. Yes, it's the best place, all cozy warm. I have found it's one or the other. Either people love reading in bed or they can't. And I'm one of the can't because I have fall asleep because okay. I'm too comfortable. <laughs> I love my bed so yes. much. Um, do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a child? I loved Charlotte's Web, and I loved Bridge to Terabithia. I loved um, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. I don't remember, like, the, the I, I think we were readers in my family, so I know I read a lot of books when I was little, little, little. But I think those are the, ta- those are the books that really made me like, love reading yeah. and want to keep reading. Um, what is some place you would like to travel that you have not yet been to? Toronto. I would absolutely love to go to Toronto. And yes, I'm going in March, so I'm really looking forward to it. Yes. Do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? My friend Laurel makes a wonderful Thanksgiving turkey, and I love celebrating with her family. And uh, she um, always has writers around the table, and it's always interesting That's to amazing. hear what they're working on and things like that. And some of them I only see them once a year, so it's really nice. I don't. I don't celebrate the holidays too much with my family because I'm overseas, sure. but if I ever had the possibility to celebrate Christmas with my family, that would be right up there too. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Both. That's fair. Both, both, both. <laughs> I'm trying to go more tea than coffee, but it's hard. Yeah. So. I've most, it's so funny. Most writers, when they say coffee is their answer, they say it with like their eyes get big and they look at me almost like I've insulted them already. I'm like, just, okay, okay. Uh, cats or dogs? Both. Love cats, love dogs. Yeah. Yes. Do you have a favorite food? I love my mother's chocolate chip cookies. Mm-hmm. Can't beat those. They're caramelized. They're just delicious. Yeah. And then, if you could have dinner with anybody alive or dead, who would you pick? Oh my gosh, that's a really hard question. I get that. Uh, people look really, at me all yeah, the time. They're always looking like, at me. Oh. I know. I should. I should begin like prefacing this before <laughs> we start talking. Like, hey, I'm gonna ask you this question. Oh, that's a good question. But I know you can just you can just edit off the silence. Oh, later. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Kidding. Um, gosh. 
Well, I was I was just at um, Midwinter in Baltimore with a bunch of passionate booksellers. And so I just was at a table with booksellers and we just went around and they told me the books that they were excited about. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I guess, my answer is yeah. booksellers because and librarians because they are just so awesome. I'd love to know what they're reading. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know what they would recommend. Yeah. And, um, that's, that's, that's you know. a perfect answer. Um, okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading the Paris Library? I guess for me, it, it's an exploration of the relationships that make us who we are and why it's important to transmit stories. And so I hope that I hope that when they read the book, I hope that that, that they'll enjoy the stories, that they'll take away the history of, of World War II. I would love it if Miss Reader, the heroine, the, the directress who stands up to the Nazi library protector, I would love it if people knew her story. And um, But also that they kind of transmit their own stories and share their own stories with others. That's perfect. The book is so fascinating. It's such an interesting story. Janet, thank you for joining oh, thank me Thank you today. for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big